0: Hey everybody, Jeremy is off today, but we are still the Evangelicals. Today we have Dr. Kevin Lehman, a very famous author and psychologist. He's written um, several books that you might have on your shelf. Uh, Sheet Music, Have a New Kid by Friday, Making Kids Mind Without Losing Yours. Dr. Kevin Lehman, I'm thrilled to have you today on The Evangelicals. Hey, I'm an evangelical. I can't spell it, but I am one. (laughs) We have a lot to talk about today. We're going to start out by talking about parenting. Uh, People are saying that it's tough to be a parent today. I don't want to minimize necessarily being a parent in other times, but just simply economically speaking – as recent as a hundred or even 150 years ago, a child was a financial asset, but these days people aren't having a kids because they're not having kids because kids are a financial liability. Um, can you speak to the age in which we're bringing up children, maybe some of the issues that you see in our culture and where we are missing it with priorities and how we are making parenting maybe more difficult than it ought to be?
1: Oh, wow, yeah, well, you're right, Jonathan. Uh, Years ago, a farmer had seven kids and six of them were boys. He was a lucky dude. Hmm. You know, today, I mean, we have five kids. and I mean, even walking in a restaurant when the <laughs> kids were younger and you'd say, a table for seven, and they'd look at you like, what? Seven? What are you, weird? Seven? Well, we could, we'll could we move those two fours together, you know. <laughs> uh, I spent $620,000 educating five kids. Oh, And I sent them all to private schools Mm -hmm. at the university, and they all worked on top of that. So it wasn't okay. Daddy's shell not all his money. You work, and you give back to the family as you work. They all worked in high school. Mm. Uh, They all gave back to the family. Well, there's one thing that's missing in America today. You talk about what are we missing. Uh, Every place I go to speak, somebody says, Essentially, Dr. Lehman, we are so glad you're here. We too want happy, happy, happy children. Well, to quote myself, which is sort of weird, in the book, Have a New Kid by Friday, I think this is the best sentence in the whole book. An unhappy child is a healthy child. There's times your little sucker has to be unhappy. Why? Because they talk back. They were smart mouth. They hit their sister or brother. I mean, there's a litany of reasons why a kid should be unhappy. There's nothing wrong with a kid being unhappy. What's wrong is his unhappiness spills over the dinner table and spoils everybody's dinner. So remove the little sucker from the room, from the scene, as I like to say. Don't be afraid to pull the rug out and let the little buzzard tumble. It's not going to damage his psyche for life. So what we miss is most parents in Canada and the U.S., Rear kids like they're the center of the universe. Now, I'm not the brightest bulb on the tree, Jonathan, okay? But I figured this out. If you bring up a kid to feel like he or she is the center of the universe, which, again, the majority of parents do. They're knocking themselves out trying to make their kids happy, happy, happy at every turn and meeting their every need and doing things for them that they shouldn't be doing. And if you bring up a kid to feel like he's the center of the universe, here's the question. Where does God fit in that picture? Mm. Again, I'm not real smart, but I figured that out. There's no room for God yeah. if the kid feels like he's the center of the universe. So we're missing a lot of things. We get kids involved uh, too early in a lot of things in life. Mm. Uh, screen time is not good for kids. And parents use screen time as babysitters. Uh, In the van, in the SUV, look in the back seat. Sometimes you're driving at night and you'll see a reflection coming out of the back seat of a car next to you at a red light. Oh, more often than not. And they're watching everything. It's just not good for kids. The smart parent will get a bunch of boxes, cardboard boxes, and put them in the family room and let little kids play in those boxes. We're we're missing some of the simple things of life is what I'm saying.
0: Yeah. Well— I guess my question to you is, what's what's the point of having kids? I mean, we really existentially. I I think in the church, I I don't know that we're answering that
1: question for. Well, there's a politician right now, a female who's asking that same question. In fact, she's saying, "Don't have kids. Mm -hmm. You know, save the environment. Don't have kids." Uh, I mean, kids are a blessing. Uh, They're a blessing to you as a parent. They're a blessing to the Lord. Uh, my quiver, I'd tell you right now, I mean, we quit having kids three times. <laughs> we had a little surprise <laughs> at age 42, and that was a joyous surprise. Mm. I mean, it was like we had the mascot. We had three kids, and then the rabbit died, and my wife took me out to dinner, and she made me this card with Santa Claus with a little baby on the lap, and I'm thinking, what the heck is this about? <laughs> and finally, I mean, I'm not, again, I'm not the smartest bulb on the tree, and finally, I... I I looked at her. I said, "You're not," and she said, <laughs> "I said, oh my goodness, we're gonna have a baby." I was so excited to have this little surprise. Oh. Then six years later, to show you the cruel side of God, we had the shocker. The shocker. I got her pregnant at age. I was fifty. She's forty-eight. Oh my, yeah. But Sarah's doing well. I mean, Sandy's doing well. She <laughs> visits us on the weekends. From the home. But, you know, having those late-in-life babies, I mean, that was part of, as I see it, God's plans for our life. We weren't praying for more children. Mm. We were happy with our three kids. Number four came around, and wow, what she's doing today in the world for parents of adoptive children is its miraculous. I'll tell you the truth. She was the one I, I prayed for the most because I remember dropping her off at school one day, 10 years old. She's walking into school and her flute comes flying out of her backpack. She's oblivious. It hits the ground. You'd think she'd hear it. She didn't. She kept walking. And then a book fell out, and then another book fell out. And she's walking along, you know, carefree. And I remember extending my hand toward Hannah, and I said, Lord, you're going to have to keep your hand on Hannah. <laughs> and Hannah, that fourth born, she surprised the living heck out of us. She's an entrepreneur, she helps people. She works at home full-time and has three-year-old twins Mm -hmm. and a husband who's a physician resident, so he works long hours. Mm -hmm. Well, we didn't know what that plan was for Hannah. And her little sister, the shocker, she's a toy designer. In fact, uh, last night in your church, someone mentioned Frozen in a dating game thing we had, if I remember, the Mm -hmm. movie Frozen. Mm -hmm. Well, my daughter is an intern designed that Frozen pond or whatever oh, they wow. call it. Very talented. Kid. Oh, wow. I have five kids are all very talented. So, you know, I think you my my grandmother was Norwegian, came over from the old country and she used to say, "Well, we just got what the good Lord gave us." She had nine kids. Mm. Well, those were different times for sure. And I understand parents saying, "Hey, how do you do it?" I mean, I can tell you functionally if you're a couple and both are working, you better have a pretty clear cut priority list, and you might not, you better not have a lot of extras in your life because if you do, you're going to fail at the two most important missions in life, and that is being a, a married person and being a good mom or dad.
0: Well, so that leads into my next question. You just said something that's very countercultural. Just this idea. I'm very countercultural. <laughs> this This idea, though, that that a blessing from God might be something that's expensive that cost me something that a blessing from that a child would be a blessing from god even though a child's an inconvenience you know
1: yeah but i i couldn't wait till one of my kids got big enough to take the garbage out there's blessings in that <laughs> i got sick of that job pass it down to other kids make them work talk to me about parenting in the
0: home where both mom and dad are working full-time jobs outside the home is there a way to do it right is there a way to do it wrong what are the early signs that something needs to change in your approach to parenting, if that's your home situation.
1: Well, the last flower you saw was at your uncle's funeral. You and your husband don't get a chance to talk. Your communication is who's picking up which child, and is it the dental appointment or the pediatrician appointment on Tuesday? I can't remember. And we get very functional, and we lose that closeness and it's sort of like plaque on your teeth, Jonathan. You know, the doc tells you come and see me every 6 months why? Cuz that plaque builds up. With couples I always say, you know, a beautiful cathedral's built one brick at a time, but let's take the negative when my mind drifts, that's what happens to me. Very imperfect person that Kevin Lehman. Don't ever forget that. So don't take whatever I say too seriously. What was the question again?
0: We were talking about about parents
1: uh, uh, both working outside of the home. All right, parents are dumb as mud. Let's start with (laughs) just some basic principles. Again, it goes back to what I said earlier about they're driven to make sure their kids have everything and do everything right, and we tend to push them uh, too early into activities. Uh, You talk about anti-culture. Listen to this one. Activities, now if you're you're driving, hang on the wheel, are not good for children. Mm. You try selling that on morning TV in New York. Mm. Our next guest says activities are not good for children. After this commercial announcement, we'll have that nut right here. And I, I sell it. I yeah. try to sell it. Yeah. Too many activities are not good for kids. Is an activity good for a kid? Yeah, sure. An activity can be good for a kid, but if you got three kids and you got two activities a piece, mm. uh, I have a chapter of one of my books. I wish I could tell you which book it is because I can't remember. But the title of the chapter is "Help, I'm a cabbie and My SUV Isn't Even Yellow." And we run kids from pillar to post with all these things. We essentially dilute our indelible imprint that we put on our own children. Question: Someone knocks on your door tonight and says, "Hey, can I take your Toyota?" Oh, now, there's an American statement: "Can I take your Toyota?" <laughs> Uh, you don't know the person. Would you give them your Toyota and say, sure, here's the keys? I Probably not. Well, why would you fork your kid over to strangers mm. at an early age that you don't really know? I mean, innocent things like sleepovers at other kids' houses, how do you know there's not a pedophile in that home? So I'm just saying that I think we have to stop. One of my favorite verses in all of God's word is simply be still and know that I am God. And I think every parent needs to stop, ask the question, what's life all about? What's the purpose of life? Why are we here? Uh, You know, there's nothing better than a great marriage. There's nothing better than a great sex life. Uh, There's nothing better than great communication between the sexes. Uh, they complement each other very well. And notice we're custom-made. We fit physically very well together. That was a, that was on purpose. God was the creator of all that. Dr. Lehman, I hope you're not telling me that God created the thing. Yes, my dear, he did create the thing. Deal with it. Can you talk
0: to me a little bit about the significance of and the importance of the marital relationship and how it affects children and
1: their upbringing okay it gives kids a strong marriage give kids a great sense of security you can take a two-year-old or three-year-old little ankle biter put them on a vertical ladder they'll climb anything okay (laughs) they're a little not so themselves and and dad is at the bottom of the ladder with his arms outstretched and jump to daddy a lot of two or three-year-old kids have no fear at all yeah they'll just leap and they'll. daddy will catch them. And it's that assurance. It's like driving a car and it's, the light's been green for 30 seconds and you just go through the intersection. How do you know that someone's not gonna run that red light and T-bone you? I mean, you don't, but I mean, that's that blind faith and kids yeah. have that kind of faith in parents. But what happens if this little kid takes a swan dive and the parent removes their arms and the kid hits the floor. Emotionally, that's what happens to kids when they see fractures in the relationship between mom and dad. When they hear the bickering and the fighting and the four-letter words and everything or the throwing of things or, or hitting each other. It literally destroys the foundation of that young person. So for a little ankle biter to see, look up and See a mom and dad who love each other and caress each other. In fact, try this at home. They always say don't try this at home. Here's a challenge for all you young bucks out there, okay? I want you to go to the kitchen. I wrote a book once called Sex Begins in the Kitchen. That's right. Because there's company in the living room. I love that title. You
0: know, my mom gave that book to my dad for Christmas one day. Oh, yeah. One year, It's
1: in 32 (laughs) languages, believe it or not. But anyway, here's my assignment for all you young bucks, you virile, sexy menu. I want you to go to the kitchen, and I want you to summon your wife to the kitchen. Now, this is on the assumption you have a three- to five-year-old child in your home, maybe even six. And I want you to just start making out. Just stand there in the kitchen and make out. Just love on each other, kiss, hug, whatever. You know, I don't know how the kids know. That mom and dad are on the make in the kitchen, but they know it. (laughs) They just have little building antennae. And those little kids come out like torpedoes out of left and right field. And what do they do? They come right up between you. Okay? Why? Because they're the enemy. That's why. No. (laughs) They, They do that because they want to be part of that sandwich. That sandwich of love. And kids are very, very perceptive of what's going on around them. And so, is your house rule oriented or is it relationship oriented? If it's rule oriented, then in all probability you're going to be an authoritarian. Well, here's the question Is Almighty God an authoritarian? So many, quote, Christian parents uh, believe that God is an authoritarian. I don't believe that for a moment. I believe he's the ultimate authority. But there's a huge difference in being huge authority, final authority, actually, and authoritarianism. Authoritarianism, God grabs Jonathan by the earlobe, twists it, grabs him by the scruff of the neck, rubs his nose in it, so to speak, and says, you will do this, you will do that. Uh, The way I read the Scripture, in fact, it says, every knee shall bow, God is the ultimate authority. So you have permissive parents on one side, okay, who are dumb as a rock. You have authoritarians who are misled. And see, authoritarianism is really alive in the church. We've had many psychologists, writers, who've sold millions of books, and they come from an authoritarian basis. Hmm. They've done nothing to help us within the church. So to move toward being an authority without being an authoritarian takes some doing. yeah. Because you and I, in all probability, and everyone listening to us, in all probability was brought up with punishment, reward, and authoritarianism. Sure. But it spurs rebellion, and it answers one of the questions why so many young people leave the church, because it's rule-dominated. Hmm. It's It's the Pharisees. It's follow the rules and everything will be okay. Well, I wish life was that simple because it isn't. Yeah,
0: um, there are probably people listening to this podcast today that are considering leaving their marriages. They've given up, and um, quite honestly, it's just a—it's a common phenomenon. I can't blame age. them. There's
1: nothing worse than a miserable marriage. Is it worth keeping together your marriage for the sake of kids? It is. It is uh, worth making it go. But you got to understand that when two people walk down the flower-strewn aisle. There were at least six people who got married. Let's talk about making a cake for a second. All right. Every man needs a good dose of femininity. Mm. Show me a man that didn't have a good relationship with his mother and somebody's going to pay for it. Again, I'm not the smartest bulb in the tree here, the brightest one for sure. But that man who did not have a primary good relationship with a key female in his life is going to take that out on any woman that he associates with in life. And marries her, well, she's got a long road to hoe. Conversely, the woman who doesn't have a good relationship with guess who? Dad, where is that going to be payback time? It's going to be payback time in a marriage. Is she going to trust? Is she going to open herself up? To quote the greatest movie ever made, The Three Amigos. (laughs) Yeah. El El Wapo is the villain star of this 1986 flick. If you've never seen it, rent it. It's priceless. (laughs) And El Wapo says to his buddy, Heffy, he says, Heffy, you don't understand women. Women are like flowers, and each petal must open itself up to you. Great psychological advice there. But what I'm saying is if you bring up a kid in an authoritarian home, He doesn't have a clue about relationships. He says, I only count life when I win, control, and dominate. Wow. I've never met a woman who came in my office and said, Lehman, I just love the way my husband Harold controls me. I've never heard that, never will. Mm. So control spurs all the rebellion in a kid's heart. Guess what? So does permissiveness. Isn't that interesting? At either extreme, produces rebellion in a kid. The permissive side The kid's rebellious because he doesn't see the parent having the guidelines. Kids need guidelines, and that's why parents are on the same page. Self-esteem, if you want to use that term, and certainly confidence and all those wonderful adjectives that we could add for a healthy kid are literally spawned right before you by you and your husband, you and your wife, beyond being on the same page and working toward a mutual goal. So does it make sense to marry someone of the same faith? Very much so. It, only if your faith's important to you, by the way. Yeah. But, I mean, the two shall become one. I, I said last night at, at uh, Lima Community Church that God was the original humorist when he came up with that one. Because it's tough. <laughs> Women are weird and men are strange. And somehow we're supposed to make it work. And it does take work. Marriage is, is simple. But it's not easy. Parenthood is simple. There's a simple paradigm, but it's not easy. So there's a lot of argument
0: about this authoritarianism and permissiveness among pediatricians, psychologists, and parents, particularly pertaining to spanking and physical discipline. Can Can you talk a little bit about spanking, whether or not it's wrong, and how do you discipline an unruly child? Well, first of all, I
1: have to tell you, I love it when my wife spanks me. No, seriously. That wasn't the question. Oh, yes, Uh, that wasn't, was it? I digress. You know, I wrote a book in 1984. 1984, let's see, that's 16 and 19. Are you better at math than I am? That's about 35 35 years ago. 35 years ago. The book still sells like crazy. It's unusual to have a book in print that long that just continues to sell. Well over a million copies sold. I revised it out of a need to keep the book in line with society, which some people may criticize. But I'm telling you today as a parent, uh, if you spank a child, you're asking for trouble. You're asking for trouble from the state you live in, from the authorities. You run the risk of having someone come in and snatch your kid out of your home. Now, I'm on record, if you read those older versions, I go to great pains to tell parents, if you're going to use physical punishment, and I'm talking about an open hand on a kid's tush, one swat. a four-year-old who's defiant, boy, it'll get his attention all right. But I revised all that stuff on purpose because, number one, I could give that advice, but I can't control the emotion inside that man or woman mm. who winds up and really hits the kid too hard. Mm. And again, in this day and age, if you want major troubles in your life, there it is. Yeah. So there's better ways of disciplining kids than physical discipline, okay? Uh, and I always say, hit him where it hurts. Uh, with a car, for example, not at 45 miles an hour, that wouldn't be a good result, But for the 17-year-old or 16-year-old who's driving a car, I mean, if he's not responsible in the home, would you give him the keys of the car? I wouldn't. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to get kids' attention. I call it vitamin N, which is no. The flip side of that is vitamin E. It came from a guy named St. Paul. And uh, there's not a lot in God's word about rearing children, very little. But children obey your parents. It's the right thing to do because God has placed them in authority over you. That's a living Bible translation. And, you know, why does a kid throw a power tantrum at the mall? Why does he make a fool out of himself? Because you didn't buy him a treat. What is he saying? He's 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 less than thirty-six inches tall. And he's saying, I am in authority over you. And so my advice is your kid flailing on the floor, on the marble floor, what do you do? You step over the child. There's a great temptation, Jonathan, Jonathan, to step on the child. Don't do that. That's illegal and very bad. But watch what happens when you walk away, parent. That three-year-old doesn't stand there and just continue to throw a hissy fit. He gets up and he might even do a, a, a slide in front of you and try it another time. And he said, wait a minute, you're not doing what I want you to do here. I want that treat. So he's frustrated, she's frustrated, she does her little dog and pony show. And when you step over the child and don't pay it off, it stops. And life goes on, and she doesn't get that little candy treat or whatever it was. And so parents need to be in authority on the lake of life. Here's my question for every parent listening. Do you have a port of call? Do you know where you're going? Because on the sea of life, I got news for you. You're going to have some mutiny. You're going to have some storms. You're going to have somebody bail off the boat once in a while. Well, you can keep going or you throw them a life raft. But again, the question is, do you have a port of call? And many, many parents, when I ask them that question, they don't know what to say. Because they're so busy dealing with the minutia of everyday living. When you say port of call, are you
0: saying like a a, a standard of this is right, this is wrong, Are you saying uh, faith basis of your marriage? Yeah,
1: I I think faith-based protocol that we're going to bring up our kids with loving guidelines. That makes all kinds of sense. Spiritually, it makes sense. It certainly makes sense behaviorally. Kids appreciate guidelines. I'm the founder of six schools out west, five in Arizona, one in Colorado. Mm -hmm. And we put authority, Jonathan, in the classroom teachers' hands. You try to get in Lehman Academy of Excellence. I mean, we have a lottery system now. We built a brand-new school just last year, and we've already got 300 waiting to get in. And we're now going to build more classrooms. And every place we go, we have to build more because people want in that school. And it's a public school. It's mm. a public school. Mm. But if little Jonathan misbehaves, I tell the parents, hey, we have professional teachers. We'll deal with little Jonathan. But if little Jonathan gets to a point where he's disrupting the whole classroom, I tell the parents, expect to call from school. But yeah. guess who calls? Jonathan calls. He gets to call home. He gets to call his dad at work and say, Dad, you need to come pick me up now because I don't know how to behave like a third grader. So we take the tennis ball of life and put it back on the kid's shoulders. It's called accountability. Yeah. And it works. Yeah. And school systems don't have that today. They throw a teacher in the classroom and they say, oh, wait a minute. Before you start teaching, one more thing. Let me have your hands. We tie them behind their back. Mm.
0: So, Dr. Lehman, all of our children are different. They have different talents, different knacks. Um. What do you do when you're when you have a child that you know is really talented
1: in a particular area? You give him or her an opportunity to expand that. If it's a natural curiosity and the child seems to have a penchant for it, you try to help develop that without pushing. What do you mean by that, without pushing? Well, the child has to pick it up. They have to seem to enjoy it and and they have a thirst inside to learn more about whether it's playing the drums or singing or athletics or whatever it is. Some kids they are just competitive by their nature in sports. Hmm. And some of those kids are really blessed with talent. And as they get bigger, there's, there's club athletics and things like that, which can be positive or negative. I mean, I think club soccer, for example, uh, where parents travel from city to city every weekend and the whole family revolves around little nine-year-old playing soccer, I don't think that's healthy. Mm. But I think if you got a kid who's 14 years old and major Division one colleges are coming calling, he's only 14, that's a kid I'd send to a sport camp in the summer. Because yeah. he can get a, in a school and save you mega money. And he or she can have the satisfaction of of, uh, paying for their college education. So what's the balance then of praising our kids? um, uh, Well, praise is destructive. That'll get everybody's attention. Let's start there. When you praise a kid, well, let me give you an example. Let's just take something like a report card comes home. Yeah. It's got five A's on it. Your traditional parent, steeped in tradition, and reward-punishment is their model. They're authoritarians. They'll things say things like, oh, five A's, I am so proud of you. Oh, my goodness. I am calling Grandma and Aunt Martha right now. Oh, this is fantastic. Wait till your father gets home. Oh, my goodness. Oh, five A's, I am, I am so <laughs> proud of you. Here's $20. So you kissed him. You told him how great he was. And people are saying, is something wrong with that, Lehman? Yeah, there's several things wrong with it. Let me give you a different way of handling that, using encouragement rather than praise. Wow, five A's. You hit it out of the park. Looks like all that hard work you put in really paid off, honey. Congratulations. Fist bump. And guess what? You just saved 20 bucks. Do you see the difference there? The kid takes that as parent recognized all my hard work. All these A's are just a sign of accomplishment for me. I did that. Mm-hmm. Where the other has the proverbial donkey with a carrot in front of it. You did so good. Here's 20 bucks. And you know, you want that to come from inside. And so again, it's hard for people to get to grasp those concepts. If you read Have a New Kid by Friday, Making Children Mine Without Losing Yours, Parenting Your Powerful Child. Those are all three books that address a myriad number of problems that parents face on a daily basis, but will also examine that praise uh, and encouragement question.
0: Let's go back to the, let's go back to the cake analogy. I don't know that we ever baked the cake. I don't know that we even got all of the ingredients in the bowl.
1: No, we didn't. And if you ask me, quite frankly, to name all the ingredients in a cake, I would fail to muster those answers properly. But (laughs) my point is that every woman needs a good dose of masculinity in her life. And, uh, every male, every son needs a good dose of femininity in their life. Mm. If they don't have it, it's like making a cake and leaving out one of those major ingredients, maybe sugar, for example, in a cake. And what's going to happen to that cake? It's going to fall flat. And it's like making a foundation without putting rebar in it. It's going to crack under pressure. And so if you look at one's personality as making a cake, you need a good mixture of things for that to come out good. And when it isn't there, other people pay for it in life. That's the problem. So... It's a pretty simple concept that you bring baggage with you from a marriage or from a family into marriage. And my experience has been that couples who've been hurt by life, they don't share. I've been the one that hears first from a woman who's come to me for counsel. I'm the first one she ever confides in that she was sexually abused in her own family. Mm. She's talked to no one. Why, why should I be the first one to hear it? Because she had nowhere to go. She had nowhere to share that ugly part of her life. And so people walk around with a lot of hidden um, baggage and bruises, psychological damage of one kind or another, and it tends to play out against that person they say they love. There's an old song, you always hurt the ones you love. Well, you always hurt the ones you love because they're closer to you. They, you have easy access to them. So I like to talk about the purpose of nature or behavior. What's the purpose of nature of a man throwing a temper tantrum? Control, domination, he has to win. Um, So that man who's the controller in all probability like a moth to a flame will find a pleaser, an accommodator, an enabler to hook up with in marriage. And that marriage will work for a while. Till the pleaser says, wait a minute, what's in this for me? Where's my payback in this marriage? I'm doing everything, he's doing nothing. That runs its course real quickly. So, again, I mean, I wrote the birth order book, which talks about personality types, and as a firstborn, you're probably going to marry in all probability a younger child or a middle. That's a natural match for a firstborn or an onlyborn. If you marry another firstborn, okay, Hmm. Now we got two people who know exactly how life ought to be. I always tell women at seminars, I said, ladies, why don't you have a wallpaper party? And just invite all your firstborn girlfriends to help you wallpaper your your kitchen. And my prediction is you'll have blood on the floor by 11 a.m. Because you have all these people that know exactly how life ought to be. So the difference that God gave to us and gave to our children are really wonderful for families. Yeah. Because it's the differences that make us a family. That son or daughter that you bump heads with the most, late breaking news, they're more like you mm. than you think. So when there's similarity personalities, they tend to be a lot of head bumping. Where there's differences, they complement each other. I mean, my wife, the firstborn, Mrs. Uppington, very <laughs> talented, very artsy, very a lot of things wonderful. But she she needs me. Because a simple dinner at our house for guests on Saturday night begins usually about Wednesday, and I end up paying for it. I have to put in new new rugs in the home because the Smiths are coming for dinner. Hello, six thousand dollars later, I could have bought a lot of dinners for six grand. But that's just who she is, and so I, I cope with that as best I can. Doctor Lehman, part of the uh,
0: I guess honor of having you on is. Uh I don't often sit with people of your age and just am able to just grill them with questions. I mean there really, dirt. <laughs> I mean there really is a um a significance to being a, a being a sage, having lived a long time and thought about things and processed and seen all the things that you've seen. I just want to ask you some questions. uh, uh just from your perspective about um faith in life. What why did Jesus come to earth?
1: Uh, Jesus came to earth to put an end to religion. Huh? Not an answer you'd probably expect. No. It sure wasn't to start a religion.
0: Yeah, no, that's right.
1: You know, um, it's interesting. Um, I was asked to speak on Easter morning at a church. Now I have spoken at you name a church, um, uh, out there in California, um, blanket on the name of the church. Saddleback, yeah, Saddleback, Willow Creek, a lot of big, huge churches. There's one in Phoenix, uh, Christ Church of the Valley, twenty-eight thousand people. I've spoken a lot of different places, the Pentagon. I mean, I've been blessed to be, and trust me, I like going to small churches. I've been in churches of three hundred. Yeah. And uh always enjoy going. And uh, there's an opportunity for me to speak at this church on Easter. And I looked at the pastor. I said, on Easter? Oh, is that like when he was born or is that like when the big rock moved? And I wish you could have look, seen the look on the pastor's face. <laughs> of course, I was pulling his chain, but i had the opportunity to speak on that easter and i i still remember some of the things i shared and i said why on that first easter did jesus allow the women to see him why did he speak to a crowd of over 500 people why did he hang out to use a colloquial expression so long after he came back to life. Could it be that Jesus did that because he knows how hard it is for some of us to believe? There was a guy that said, show me, I'll believe it when I see the nail prints in his hand. Well, and by the way, the disciples, they were dumb as mud. I know that offends some of you because they were handpicked by Jesus. I realize that. But they didn't get it. In John 14, one of my favorites, Book of John is great. My advice to anybody is just keep reading the Book of John. You'll be fine. It's great stuff. Anyway, in John 14, Jesus knows what's coming. He knows he has to get on that cross and question Did he want to get on that cross? You have to remember, Jesus is 100% human and 100% God. Try to find someone who matches that description. So the human part of Jesus, he didn't want to get on that cross. That's a brutal way to die. But he knew he had to do that. And when he died and he was savagely beaten where were his followers where do we find the disciples they were hidden behind locked doors <laughs> and i love this it's just it's just a supernatural jesus i mean jesus eventually goes to the disciples does he knock on the door and say I'm home, (laughs) does he come to the door and say, I'm gonna huff and puff and blow your door down like the big bad wolf, no. But what he does is, instantly he appears in their midst. And I'm telling you, Jonathan, those disciples were checking their pants. (laughs) They couldn't believe what they saw because the last time they saw Jesus, he was a bloodied mess on that tree. And there he was. And if you ever, I guess this is, I hope this is encouraged for, urge, encouragement for your listeners here. You ever feel like you don't measure up? You ever feel like you don't have it all together? That you failed miserably? You're in good company. You're in good company with people like uh, the 12 disciples. They didn't have it all together. So as I said many times, when you realize how frail you are and how undeserving you are and how downright sinful you are, then and only then can you really serve God. I mean, I love people who, I love, I'm tongue in cheek, people who talk about, oh, he is such a strong Christian, such a strong Christian. I've never met a strong Christian, to tell you the truth. In fact, my mother used to drag me to church. (coughs) My mother used to drag me to church, which I didn't like to begin with. On top of that, she sent me to Joy Club. I hated Joy Club. It was brutal. And Joy Club stood for Jesus, others, and you. Isn't it interesting that here I am near death and still remember what the Joy Club stood for? (laughs) And she would put uh, plaques in my bedroom as a kid. One of them read, uh, only when life will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. I hated that sucker. I was embarrassed to have it on the wall of my home, in my bedroom. And my buddy Moonhead Deech and Jamie Huber came over to play in my room. Um, There it was on the wall. Well... As parents, you do things because you know what's right. You have a little different perspective than an eight- or nine-year-old boy. But I know my mother, when I think about life and what life's all about, and life, everything in life has a beginning. We're born, we live, and we die. And uh, my mom lived to be 95 years of age. So she got to see her youngest son do some things in life. Yeah. And she was very, very proud of her little son. And, uh, you know, when you start doing some things in life, you get accolades from the culture. I'm in several Hall of Fames and got honorary doctorate degrees and awards from the university I attended and all that. The best award I ever got was my high school. They called me up one day and said they wanted to put me on their Wall of Fame. Well, this is Downright funny, Jonathan, because I graduated fourth in my class in high school, but it was fourth in the bottom (laughs) and not fourth in the top. In fact, one of my vivid memories of school was sitting in first grade, and we sat in those little chairs in a reading group. I looked to my left, and the girl next to me is eating paste. She's eating paste out of a three-inch jar. And I remember thinking, I know I don't belong in this group, (laughs) but they had me in that group of slow learners. But Anyway, I digress. So I had an opportunity to take my mother to the ceremony when I was inducted into the Wall of Fame. And um, it was so much fun because my mom was 90 at the time. And we're driving up about an hour and a half from the retirement center she lived in, in Jamestown, New York, up to Buffalo, New York area. We had a conversation that went like this. I said, hey, Ma, we fooled a few people, didn't we? She said, oh, honey, I am so proud of you. And when she died, we found pictures that she took of me on TV. There's the TV, (laughs) and I'm on TV with Regis Philbin, with Oprah Winfrey, with uh, Phil Donahue. I'm, I'm so old, I go back to Donahue days. But she loved her kids, and she loved her little baby son. And uh, she's telling me how proud she was. And I said, Mom, remember when the cops brought me home that night? And she said, oh, I do. But you were such a good boy. I said, Mom, remember when I got the stolen sweaters and got in trouble for selling those? And she said, oh, I do. I mean, that's that's receiving stolen goods. A fraternity brother (laughs) of mine had broken a men's store. He was drunk and gave me a whole case of sweaters. This is embarrassing because I was doing a pastor's conference years years ago in Chicago. And a pastor came who I went to college with in Chicago. He said, Kevin, it's so good to see you. But I got to tell you, I was thinking about when we were in college, we were just freshmen. And I bought a brand new sweater from you for just 50 cents. (laughs) I made me laugh out loud (laughs) because I had forgotten I sold them at school. But anyway, you know, everything I said. My mother had the same response. You were such a good boy. And all I could think of was uh, Paul's letter to the Italians in Romans uh, 8, uh, 39. And it just simply says this. Nothing separates you from the love of God. And that's what I would leave with your listeners today that, hey, what is it in your life that's a challenge? Whatever that something is, Nothing separates you from the love of God. Is that hard to get through your mortal brain and heart? Yes, it is hard, but that's the truth.
0: I want to talk to you about legacy, just from your perspective. What are what are things a young man like me should do to live a life that's meaningful? I want I want your wisdom here. I want you to impart to us some nuggets of wisdom that we can't live without for a meaningful life. Hmm.
1: Well. I think you got to really try to honor God in, in all the things you do, especially in the relationship you have with your wife. The time and effort you put into building that relationship of understanding all her little idiosyncrasies and helping to meet those needs pays off handsomely. Pays off handsomely for her. Pays off handsomely for you and your children. I'm always reminding parents that um, the kids are always looking up and they're taking emotional notes, spiritual notes, behavioral notes on how you live and conduct yourselves. They're always watching. It's like there's just a recorder that's continuing just to record everything they see and feel. I think that's the best chance you have for living a legacy. Since you work in a church, I would caution you not to sell your soul to the company store. Uh, Lots of times, uh, pastors of all kinds, worship leaders, uh, youth workers, um, they have a hard time using what I call vitamin N, which is no. They have a hard time building in parameters so they have time away from work, so work isn't all-consuming. But it's the Lord's work. I've heard that one, too. Uh, I've seen a lot of pastors fail, fold. I've seen marriages uh, disintegrate before our very eyes. Somehow we think as Christians that we're impervious to the realities of life. And and I'm here to tell you we're not. We're pretty imperfect people. I love St. Paul because he, he says, you know, I don't understand myself. He says, I tell myself I'm not going to do these things. And I do these things. Well, what day of the week do diets start on? Mondays. Tomorrow. Why? Because you're out for dinner on Saturday night and you say to your wife, "Uh, honey, I'm going to start working out. I'm going down to Y. They got a new program down there. I'm going to start doing some treadmill work and I'm going to start lifting some weight. I'm going to get the body in back in good shape. Uh, Pass me that cherry cheesecake, would you, sweetheart? I mean, it's called the human condition. We're destined for failure. Now listen to what I'm saying. You're destined for failure. You're asking about legacy. I'm telling you, you're going to fail. It's not going to be everything you think it's going to be, but it's going to be okay because that's the human condition. And uh, when you die, Your kids are going to make you sound better than you were in all probability because you were in their eyes great. Our problem is we know ourselves. We know where we fail. We know we could have done things different. I use the term be careful about shooting on yourself. We're great shooters. Not only do we shoot on ourselves, but we shoot on other people. When you shoot on other people, what do you convey? You didn't jump high enough. Is that encouragement, is that vitamin E? No, that's discouragement. And so that little rudder in our mouth called a tongue can either build up people and leave a great aftertaste in someone's life or it can be critical. For the person who grows up with a critical eye, I wrote the birth order book, and one of the variables that affect birth order is put a parent who's very critical uh, in a family. And who's going to pay for that? The firstborn son or the firstborn daughter will pay for that. And so rather than be the firstborn that's perfectionistic and driven and on top of their game, so to speak, that family will produce a firstborn. That's a procrastinator who doubts themselves, who starts off on projects and then dies in the stretch of life. Why? Out of fear of criticism. And so that critical eye can get you in trouble. And the skill that makes you good, men, this is just for you in particular, but the skill that makes you good at what you do in your living is the same skill that gets you into trouble with ones you love. Usually the critical eye is a killer mm. that ability to spot a flaw. If you're an architect, an engineer, anywhere perf- where perfection is paid off, a dentist, um, I think of the astronauts and outer space of the first 23, 21 firstborn children and two only. It's not a middle or a baby in sight. And so people who flourish in science and math, for example, tend to be firstborn children. Mm. And it pays off in their vocation, but they can spot a flaw at 50 paces in their home with the ones they love, and that's where they end up paying for that. Wow.
0: The Evangelicals Podcast is recorded at Lima Community Church of the Nazarene in Lima, Ohio.